I had been working with my father in the sewing machine business after I graduated from college. I decided that I didn't want to work for them. So I left them and I was just looking for an idea what to do. And within a short period of time, I opened my office in March of 1961 in Atlanta. And the builders were taking back second mortgages, 1,000, 2,000. The builders needed the cash. He was happy to sell me the seconds for 50 cents on a dollar. So let's fast forward to the savings and loan crisis. We have the same problem today with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So how long was your decision-making process? 10 minutes. This is Investor Creator. I'm Brad Smotherman, and today we have a very special guest, Mr. Emmanuel Harris. Mr. Harris has been note investing for almost 60 years, and in that time has done thousands of transactions across multiple states. Just last year, Mr. Harris was awarded the Lifetime Achievement Award by the Note Expo, Mr. Eddie Speed, for his monumental achievement in the note industry. Mr. Harris is widely considered to be one of the top investors in notes across the country, and he is here today to impart his vast wisdom to us. <laughs> Mr. Harris, welcome to Investor Creator. Thank you. So I really want to dive into your early story. So you started investing in notes when you were 30 years old, correct? That's correct. Okay. So just kind of tell us about how you started in the note business. Well, I had been working with my father in the sewing machine business after I graduated from college. I would also serve a couple of years in the army. The sewing machine business had been going strong, but then women started were able to buy clothing so cheap that uh, the sewing machine business slowed down sharply and uh, we, we got out of it. Is it worth speaking of how that this all came about? Absolutely, sure. Well, the Japanese, we were importing machines from Japan. I was in uh, New Orleans uh, working where we were importing them. But then the business slowed down sharply, and uh, actually, uh, my father sold to to the Japanese brother sewing machine, brother international company, and I worked uh, for them for a short time, about a year, and then, uh, well, they paid off what they had promised to pay us, and uh, I had some money to start with, but it was a very modest amount. I decided that I didn't want to work for them. I was managing a, a warehouse in uh, New Orleans at the time. So I, I left them and I was just looking for an idea what to do. My father had, was living, he had retired at that point, and he was living in Miami. And I went down there, I was renting, uh, running my house there. And we were sitting around a pool one day and uh, a friend of my father's, Bob Shear, we were just talking, and, and he started mentioning to my father while I was listening that uh, he was in a business that he had started uh, a year or two before in Greensboro, North Carolina. 
and it had to do with uh, making mortgage loans. And he told me that, he told us that, you know, it was looked like a very attractive business. He was uh, making loans and also discounting some mortgage paper, mostly second mortgages. And it sounded interesting to me. And since I, I was not employed at the moment, I said to him, uh, would you mind if I went to, uh, to Greensboro with you and you go home? You know, he was just there for a few days and see what you're doing. He was a little reluctant about it, but since my father was a good friend, he said, okay, come on up there. So I went to Greensboro and saw what he was doing. And basically, it was something like this, that we'd make, he'd make second mortgages mostly, it could be first, but mostly seconds, on the equity in someone's home. And you could get, the interest rate was attractive in that you could get 6% add-on interest, which amounted to about 11%. Plus, you could charge a brokerage fee for making the loan in addition to that, which brought it up to whatever, 18% or, or more. And uh, it sounded interesting. So I had uh, been to Atlanta, where I'd met my wife while I was in the service in the Army. And I'd chosen Atlanta looked like an attractive place to do business. I then went to a, an accountant attorney and asked him what the law, if the laws that were in North Carolina were the same as they were in Georgia. And he said, yes, they were. You could do the same thing. And within a short period of time, I opened my office in March of 1961 in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And I began doing same sort of things that Bob Shear was doing in North Carolina. So you were effectively doing mostly second loans, second mortgages to people that were owner occupants at that time. Yeah, yes, and their equity in the home. Okay. And so when you first started buying notes and creating notes, were you really committed to the note business or were you just kind of kind of seeing how things went? Well, I was pretty committed. I liked the sound of it. And, and right away, we were advertising in the paper a little bit, and uh, it, I received good interest. And mm-hmm. I made loans almost immediately, and uh, it seemed to make sense to me because, sure. I mean, a person owned the home, and he had equity there, and I would give him a modest amount of money compared to the value of the home he had, and it looked like a Good business to be in. And I assume that people generally put 20% down during this time. Yes. Okay. Or they had been in the house a good bit of time and they built some equity. Sure. And these were generally A paper borrowers. So there wasn't C and D class paper for mortgage origination during that time? I wouldn't say A class. Okay. I would say B, you know... uh, reasonable credit. I mean, I wouldn't want to deal with someone. I could get a credit report and uh, they had to have reasonable credit. I didn't buy just based on taking somebody's property. Mm -hmm. I bought because I thought the man would pay me. Sure. Sure. (laughs) That makes sense. And at this time, I know now that local banks will do second mortgages up to 90% or sometimes 95%. Did you have local financing that would do second mortgages, or was this mostly a a private industry at that point? Private industry. So most second mortgages were a private industry at that point. The banks didn't want to deal with them. That was considered 
low end, so to speak. Interesting. Interesting. So that's a big opportunity because now most financial institutions will do seconds yes. you know, on up there. So that, that makes a lot of sense. So you had some capital to start with. Yes. What attracted you to notes versus like rental housing, which most people would say is a, a more common investment for I didn't being even tied think to real of those terms. Then the interest rate, really. It mean, just it right. If a person owned the rental house and they wanted to borrow money against it, that's okay. Sure, but as far as you owning a, a bunch of rentals versus no, owning notes, no, no. you'd rather own the note. Yes. That makes sense. That makes sense. So what was the economy like at this point? I would say it was good. Atlanta, good. Atlanta was a very attractive city. It, mm -hmm. There were about, I think the metro population in, in that time was, I think, 700,000. And you can imagine what Atlanta is today. It's probably well over 5 million. So right. it was a growing city and it was attractive. Sure. How do you feel that the note business is different today than, than back then? Oh, it's very different because the laws have changed. And, uh, you know, the, well, I was involved almost quickly with saving and loans, Atlanta Federal, Federal Saving and Loan. And they were, uh, well, when I started purchasing mortgages more than making loans, I was dealing with a lot of builders. And they would, uh, the, the price of homes, you know, usually in the suburbs of Atlanta, places like Mableton and Austell, Georgia, which are just outside of the city. And there were, there were a lot of builders that were building homes, uh, ten to $15,000, little two-bedroom, one-bath brick homes. And the, the banks would lend like 75% of the price of the home. And the builders were taking back second mortgages, $1,000, $2,000. The banks, the saving loans would let them do that. Mm -hmm. But they had to, the loans were generally 20 years, and they wouldn't let the builder take back a mortgage for a shorter term than 20 years, the length of the first, to keep the monthly payments low. Sure. But meantime... The builders needed the cash, so they would say take back a, a two thousand dollars second mortgage for for twenty years. The amount of the first move, the payment might be fifteen twenty dollars a month. You've got to understand that the values of money were a lot different than sure. than they are today. So uh, and that builder he didn't want to sit with a mortgage. He needed cash. He didn't want to sit with a mortgage for. 20 years collecting $15, $20 a month or something like that. Mm -hmm. He was happy to sell me the seconds for 50 cents on a dollar. Mm -hmm. And the second generally was like 6% or something like that. But you buy it at 50 cents on a dollar. And then I found out almost very quickly that I could go to the homeowner who had bought the house in, after he was paying for a year or so and tell him, look, you have a second mortgage here that's paying, you owe me $2,000 and you're paying $20 a month or whatever the amount was. Sure. And I say to him, look, if you start paying me $50 a month instead of $20 a month, I won't charge you any interest. And, or you can pay me off, uh, you know, and I gave them incentives to yeah. pay off that mortgage early. And... I said, if you pay me $50 a month instead of $20 a month, 
you'll have this thing paid off in less than two years, you know, in whatever, uh, in two years, say, instead of 20 years. But meantime, since I had bought them at 50 cents on a dollar, the return was very high when I could get the homeowner to take advantage of accelerated payments. Mm-hmm. Or they could pay it off for 80, 75 or 80 percent of, of the balance. You know, various methods of increasing my return. Right. So bringing the present value up. Yeah. Based on that. And that was a good thing for everybody because the builder got his money. Absolutely. The the homeowner got a discount on the basically the purchase price of the home and you got a great yield. Yes. So that makes sense. So you were 30 years old when you started the business. And I assume you had a a young family either then. Yes, I had two children right away and uh, assumed to be added to. Sure. So and you have four children, correct? Yes. Okay. And. How did you deal with work-life balance? Because I know, at least for me, that that's kind of a struggle because there's always something going on in the business. So if you want to stay busy in my business, I I could work 14 hours a day if I want to, but at some point that becomes a little bit of a detriment to the family life. How does someone deal with that? Difficult question. (laughs) I never seemed to, I was very happy with what was happening and I was happy to, and I had a fine, wonderful wife who also helped me in in the business. She she worked with me uh, a good bit. And uh, I I never, I didn't have that kind of problem. Well, that's a good thing. (laughs) That's a good thing. And that's a difference in uh, flipping and and notes, I suppose, or one of them. So whenever you were starting your business, what would an average day look like for you? So you had your office. I assume you'd go to your office. I had an office in downtown Atlanta. Okay. One of the high-rise buildings. Uh-huh. Uh, and the rents were quite reasonable, especially when you compare them to what they are today. And I, I would put, I would always wear a suit and a tie. And I had a chart on my closet wall, and it said, if I have a blue suit, I can have a, a white shirt with a, a colored tie to match. And I just followed, I had three or four suits, and I could... I would always uh, try to match them so that I looked respectable. Mm-hmm. And I always treated my customers with courtesy. So you would have people call in, I assume. Yeah, I advertised. So you advertised, you had people call in, and they would say, well, I'd like to borrow X amount on yeah, yeah. on my house, and you would start to analyze that deal. And I'm just kind of curious. So in a month, how many people do you think would contact you? An average month. Right. Yeah. A dozen? I don't know. About a dozen? Yeah, I, I, I can't honestly remember that. Well, I, I know after 60 years of, <laughs> uh, of doing this that it, it's, it's been a while, so I, I could understand that. So you go to the office, you'd analyze deals and, and make deals. Yeah, and, and, and I advertise, or I saw some ads at that time. There were people, even some companies would advertise that they had mortgages for sale. So would most of your business be you originating the loan or would it be you buying already established? After a while, it was more to buy uh, loans. More to buy. So let's talk about your decisions on purchasing. So what do you want to see in a note to feel really happy about purchasing it? Well, uh, first, that there was some reasonable equity in the property. I was fortunate that at the time the values were going up. I was in Atlanta, a good city. There was a reasonable amount of inflation, 
Mm -hmm. which would increase the values of the property. And of course, if somebody was in a house for two, three, four, five years, there was a good chance that the prices had gone up too. So uh, the getting a and that the equity, I would say, I would wouldn't want to go over say seventy five or eighty percent of what I thought would be the reasonable value of the house. The person in the house was living in there for some time, and the neighborhood was civilized. Sure. So you weren't interested in going to places where you had to bring a pistol. No, no. me either. <laughs> <laughs> I can understand that. So what about uh, people that had a lower down payment? Would that be a, a strike against it? You mean when they bought the house? Correct. As I said again, if they put very little down and there was no equity, I, I wouldn't buy it. But sure. just by living in a house, the way things were going in Atlanta at that time, if, if somebody lived in a house for three years, the chances are they had sufficient equity. Right. Right. And that, we're seeing that all across yeah, the country yeah, now yeah. as well. So in your collection process, how important is it to be really tight on collections? As I recall that we, we had tags that I, I would have my box with all the uh, accounts and I would tag them with a green tag when 15 days over the, the due date. And the next tag I would have was it was maybe it was a yellow tag, would be that it went over 30 days. At 15 days, we would send them a notice. Sure. At about 30 days, then we'd send them a stronger notice or call. we'd call them. Generally, we wanted to call the person uh, rather than just uh, when they reached 30 days. When they were really difficult, we would put a black tag on them. So black is bad. <laughs> yeah. The black tag is a bad bad tag. Yeah. Okay. Of course, then they would have to be uh, called. Or we, we'd make a stronger demand for the money. So they get the black tag, and so some of them are going to go into foreclosure. So at, at what point do you make the decision like, okay, like let's sever ties on this one, start the foreclosure well, process? Uh, before we did that, Normally, we'd give a person an extension. Okay. If somebody said, you know, you felt you were dealing with a responsible person that was in problem. We'd say, okay, Mr. Jones, uh, you're behind three months. I'll will uh, let you give you an extension, or if you start paying now, we'll call your account up to date. If they so, could show that they, but when the, if they reached the point where we could see there was no way out of it, or they, they just demanded the house or some such thing, it's another story. Sure. Uh, but I, early in my uh, career, I had uh, always had two or three guys that would buy your position if you ran it, uh, you know, to take it over. I never wanted to foreclose if I could avoid it. Sure. And uh, I often, when I had the black tag people and it seemed like we we couldn't make, you know, we couldn't get them to pay for whatever reason. I'd call Ed Collins, who was a guy I knew, and uh, another fellow, I forget the name. Sure. <laughs> Tony Lefevre was one. And I'd call them. And these were guys that were looking to take over property where there was equity. 
and say the guy owed me a couple thousand dollars, two thousand dollars, I'd say to him, look, uh, okay, uh, uh, first I'd try to recover what I had in it. If I could get that, and the guy was, I, I understood that I could foreclose the property and possibly make more, but that takes a lot of time and effort, and it's unpleasant work also. Sure. I would much rather sell the mortgage and get whole or sometimes not quite whole just to get rid of it so that uh, I could forget and get rid of it. So you had people that would buy basically the, the defaulted paper, and then yeah. they would go and foreclose it. Yeah. And what they with did issue. with it was their business, but sure. I'd just get out of it. Right. And so your business decision was, I'd rather take and get all of my capital back or pretty close and put it back out with good borrowers versus yeah. dealing with the time frame of, yeah. of foreclosure. That's correct. That makes a lot of sense. And, and Georgia at the time, was it a, a long or a short foreclosure state? It was not bad. Was it, it bad? It, it was not bad. I mean, I, just a few months, I'd say, didn't get good take over the property. Gotcha. Gotcha. So it sounds like you took extenuating circumstances into yes. account whenever yes. someone was falling behind. And yes. Doing Some people had finance. a legitimate problem, and we, we worked with them. Sure. So one of the main criticisms of notes is what happens if I get the house back and the borrower has messed it up some? They uh, ripped out a wall or took the cabinets out. I mean, I'm sure you've had that happen. It has happened, but I would try to get rid of that mortgage if humanly possible. I very rarely would take back a property. Understood. So your first line of course of action would be to, to get rid of the defaulted paper. But then if you had to take it back, then you had to and you deal with that. But it sounds like that didn't happen very often. Very, very seldom. Really. Very seldom. Very seldom. Very seldom. Let's fast forward to the savings and loan crisis. So that was, I guess, roughly middle of your career. Well, so we're speaking in the 70s. Well, they, they were basically not making a good loan. They were giving long-term paper and uh, without taking into account the possibilities of inflation and interest rates going way up. And uh, uh, it, it was just not a... We have the same problem today with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Uh, they, they make 30-year loans <laughs> at 4% interest or 3.5% interest. And, but the government's uh, private companies or banks can't handle that. It's impossible. Only the federal government will do something like that. And uh, it's going to lead to trouble. And it will lead to trouble today, So eventually. So if we go to an 8 or 9% inflationary environment, you're saying the present value of that paper would just like collapse. Yeah. And, and, and the, the government, in the end, will have to take that up. Sure. So with the savings and loan crisis, did that crisis change your decision-making at all as far as your purchases of notes, or were you so conservative in your purchases that it really didn't matter? It didn't bother me that much, to be honest with you. And I never leveraged myself much. You know, I grew slowly. I didn't, we didn't uh, suddenly borrow piles of money. I've had borrowed money a couple of times when I had packages to buy. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd go to the Fulton National Bank and uh, I could borrow, so I did at times borrow to buy a package of mortgages, but I did never uh, put myself in a position where I had to do something. I could uh, kept it under control. 
So you really like the slower, steady growth that yeah. was safe. Yeah, I was not somebody to take on. If somebody offered me a mortgage that was very large, and I'd rather pass it up than get involved. So when interest rates approached 15% and higher, how did that affect the note industry? Let me just say that I took advantage of that. At that time, uh, I'm going into the, the late 70s, early 80s, or in the 80s. Mind you, I may be a little wrong with some of what I'm telling you because sure. I had moved from Atlanta to Tampa, Florida, and uh, the schools were went to hell. Mm-hmm. I had four children, and uh, the public schools were terrible. I lived in the city of Atlanta in a nice neighborhood, but the the public schools were terrible. And my wife, we were putting our children into private schools. And my wife, we were carpooling the four different schools, basically. Uh, So she was begging me to to leave Atlanta because of the situation with the schools. Well, I promise you my wife would be saying the same if she was carpooling four different schools. So uh, so I decided I was going to leave. She wanted me to just get out of the city. In other words, our home was in the city. And uh, right across, we lived right on the Chattahoochee River. On the other side of the Chattahoochee River was Cobb County, mm-hmm. where uh, the public schools were still reasonable, but I decided that I was going to just leave Atlanta anyway, and uh, and that's when we I decided to move to Tampa, Florida. Mm-hmm. That was in 1979. So that was right before the, the interest it, it was, began uh, yeah, to Yeah, it was. Uh, the interest rates were starting to go up rapidly then, and we did beautiful business. Some of the best business I ever did was when we moved to Florida. A lot of the people were moving to retire, to live in Florida, and financing was impossible when the rates were so high. And what would happen, say somebody lived in Ohio and they would uh, sell their house and, and the person could assume the mortgage, but they didn't have these big down payments to make mm-hmm. and they couldn't buy, borrow the money from the banks. So the, in order to make the sales, people were taken back a $10,000, $20,000 second, or it might be a first that, that, that they took back. Mm-hmm. And they moved down to Florida. And it was not just in Tampa. We did a lot of business in Orlando or all the surrounding areas. Not Miami. I did not go to Miami because there was plenty of competition down there. Okay. So... We, we would, uh, so these people would come down there and they own a $10,000 second mortgage, say, on a house and it runs for 20 years. And they, the house was up in Ohio or in Indiana or you name it, New York. And I didn't care. I mean, we would, uh, we would buy these mortgages at a good discount and uh, from wherever they came from. And uh, we we could get often get uh, somebody to check to look at the property, or uh, and we could get credit on the new borrower. Uh, you know, some of this stuff was uh, anyway. I won't go into that. But uh, 
uh, we, we would, uh, and if if need be, I'd get in a damn plane or something and go <laughs> see the property, and uh, you know, or uh, hire somebody to go look at the property. We had many different methods, and we could get a credit report. Whether it was done properly, I'm not sure, you know, but we could get the information. And uh, we did a lot of that purchasing, and it was great business, really. Uh, so, uh, and we were working with brokers who, who would get deals in and then call us and like Eddie Speed, right. people like that. They would uh, say, oh, I got a deal up in Michigan, and here's... Here are the details, and if it sounded good to me, you know, we'd buy them. So how long was your decision-making process? So if Eddie called you, and you've done quite a bit of business with Eddie. It wasn't at that time with Eddie, but later. But say a trusted broker called you and said, these are the details. How long would it take you to make a decision on that? Very short, if it made sense to me. So hours, days, seconds? Well, uh, well, first of all, they have to come, the seller of them, well, if I'm dealing with brokers or I'm dealing directly with the guy, uh, of course, if I dealt the broker, if I dealt with a broker, he already had the, the work together and I'd say it might take me 10 minutes, five minutes right. to make the decision. If I had to work with Mr. Jones, who just moved here from Michigan, and uh, I'd size him up and he'd come. I've got this mortgage for sale and uh, he'd give me the information. And uh, of course, I had to do a little checking. I could say I'd buy it immediately, but you have to check that the paperwork was in order and that uh, try to get a credit report from on the guy that's in it. And you can tell when you're dealing with a gentleman, you know, he lived in a decent house. You, you could tell by the seller often that and these were good people. They were lived in, uh, in Michigan and they retired from General Motors or whoever. And they're sure. they down here and here they have, they show me the paperwork they have. They sold the house for $100,000 and the guy had a mortgage balance of 60 and he wanted to sell me a $20,000 mortgage that's paying so much a month. I could make the decision very quickly, but I need a little time to make sure. Sure, some some due diligence, it sounds like. Yeah, some due diligence, but not much. I, I would make very fast decisions. So it sounds like the inflationary environment created people or forced people to take these seconds, which then created a buying opportunity yes, for you. Yes, that's right. And, and that so, was an excellent, that was the best business I've ever done, I think. I'm not, well, not maybe not, but okay. But it was good. It was very good. Well, that, that's wonderful. Let's switch and talk about the 2008 crash. So in the 2008 crash, you were semi-retired. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Which do you think was worse, the 2008 crash or the savings and loan crisis? I would say the 2008 crash was worse. So that crash, did you at all expect that crash to happen? Did you see things in the markets just like this just isn't, doesn't feel right? I felt in my bones that, the, that things were getting out of hand. I, I didn't trust the, the values the same way. Hmm. I mean, because some values just seem to be un, unreasonable. 
Sure. Well, in Florida, especially. Yeah, yeah because in Florida so was money. very bad. And uh, uh, we just, uh, we had, anyway, when you see a house that was selling for twenty five or 30000 go up to 100000 in short order, I mean, I, I didn't trust that value. A little strange. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. So during that time, the crash of 08, a lot of paper defaulted. So did you see that the, the note industry, that there was opportunity there, or was there so much fear that people really kept cash on the sideline? Well, uh, I, we still kept doing business, but we do it in a way that you putting the value at what I thought it was worth rather than what the hell they were selling it for, Right. <laughs> if you know what I mean. Sure. So we continued to do business, but uh, there were so many of the people that we were working with that were uh, that owed money. We worked with a lot of uh, people, uh, you know, investors at the time. They really, uh, a lot of good people, you know, that knew what they were doing, that really were going broke. We helped bail some of them out. So do you think that there was opportunity in that market or was it best just to stay away? There's some opportunity, but uh, certainly we couldn't. When you deal with a house that's selling for a hundred thousand and it goes down to twenty-five, <laughs> not much, not much wiggle room to play there. Yeah, I understand. I understand. The crash of of '08 was such an important time for me to see, because you know I'd sold real estate from 2005 to 2010, and then I started investing in 2010. And the builder developer that I worked for all through college. He got cash called by a local bank. He had paid his principal down significantly because he was anti-debt and because he had an equity position, or at least uh, the bank didn't think that they were going to lose as much on him as they would on somebody else. They called him. And then, you know, it's tough for a guy that I, I think he borrowed three million. He had it paid down to one and it was probably worth two. And they cash called him, I think, $650,000. Well, he didn't have it, you know, and it broke yeah. him. And it was just an amazing time to see because there was a lot of lessons, I think, that there were that were there that I was really lucky to, to get to see. Switching gears, and, and these are just kind of more broad kind of questions. So do you prefer hard money loans or owner-occupied? Owner-occupied housing, yeah. Owner-occupied. What would you estimate the default rate to be on owner-occupied? The default rate on owner-occupied. Homes. When and just in general, just across your career. So I mean, are we talking five percent? The or? ones I dealt with, or you sure. know, we're about in a higher rate than normal. Right, absolutely. We're dealing the seconds, the fall rate. My goodness, five percent, ten percent. So maybe somewhere up to ten percent. Yeah, yeah. Which is still pretty. Yeah. Pretty low. Yeah. So I mean, if low. you have a basket of assets. Yeah, then. because we tried to deal with good people. Sure. And we tried to deal in respectable neighborhoods, you know. Right. Okay. So how do you recommend today that, that people get started? So if somebody wants to begin note investing, what should they do? You need some experience for sure. And you need some excess capital. If you have to borrow too much, you put yourself on the line. I'd say experience and some capital experience and some capital. One question, why do you think your business has been successful and at this point across six decades when there have been some major financial institutions that have collapsed in that time? Well, one thing, I never tried to 
overdo myself as far as uh, borrowing. I was always in a comfort zone. I, I passed up some a lot of deals that I just couldn't uh, didn't want to handle. You know, that they might have put me in. I had deals where I bought half of a package instead of the whole package because I couldn't. I felt it would strain me too much, and uh, I didn't have debt. After a while, I had some debt early in my career, but even then, it was modest compared to my assets. And uh, that has a good bit to do with it, I believe. And I I was conservative. So staying deleveraged and conservative in your processes, do you look back and think, well, I should have bought that whole package as opposed to half, or were you happy that you you didn't have to worry? I was happy that I didn't make that decision, even though some of the paper was very good. But I didn't want to go outside my comfort zone. Let's put it that way. Sure. So the the last thing that I want to touch on is family. So for those that don't know, Mr. Harris has four children and one grandson that are currently investing in notes. Was it your intention that this become a family business or was it just something that happened? It was not. It's just something that happened. None of my children from the outset wanted to go into the business. (laughs) What do you think that is? I don't know. I can't answer that. Although uh, one reason might be that once you get into this condition where you've got hundreds of people sending you checks every month to pay on the mortgage, that it's comfortable. I mean, I could take vacations or uh, I had a lot of freedom. Let's put it that way. I'm in a very comfortable position. So the, the note business for you provided lifestyle that most people couldn't have with other asset classes. Yes, I, th- I felt that, and I still feel today. I don't want to change places with anybody. I, I still own a lot of notes, and the, we get a lot of cash flow coming in. And mm-hmm. I think that uh, that may have been the reason, but uh, the kids, uh, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. That, like I say, none of them said right away when they got out of school, out of college, and say, oh, I want to go in your business. Was it good for them to have something else that they did for a little while? Yes, yes. So if one of them had come to you at, at the beginning and said, well, I'm ready, uh, Dad, let's do this business together, do you think you would have said, well, why don't you go do something else for a little while and then we'll see? Probably not. I probably would have said, I'll try to work with you. Okay. So it's something that I've always heard is to not do business with family. And I've had pretty good luck with family. But getting to know your family the past few years, I can see that you have a very close family. Yes. And doing business together seems to have worked incredibly well. Yes. But I, it was said, I set it up in a way that's rather unique. And uh, it amounts to something like this. When I had a son that wanted to go in the business, I formed the corporation. By this time, by the way, I was pretty comfortable. Mm-hmm. I would form a corporation. With my son, each one of them has his own corporation. They own 60% of the stock, and I own 40%. And it's a very small, modest amount of money, just to use a number. Say they put up 6000 I put up 4000 mm-hmm. you know, forming a corporation. But then I would lend money to that corporation at modest rates of interest as they needed it to build up the corporation. And they're the controlling interest, remember, not me. 
And each one of my children has that type of corporation. And so they're their own boss. And they worked separately, but sometimes together. If they saw a deal, they could split it up or do whatever. But each one had his own vehicle to work with. And, and they didn't, uh, this avoids a lot of feuding between them. Have you seen people that you've grown up with or been around over the years that working family and business together has really created a lot of problems? That's difficult for me to answer. I think there's, but they didn't set it up the way I do. They usually have a big, bigger company, and they, there are several people in that company that are in the family. There could be a great many, some big businesses, and I'm sure there's some feuding that goes on among them. Who wants to be the top dog? Sure. But uh, yes, I, I would imagine there's more of that, but I. I but the way that you set it up, you feel, was made it to where those issues are probably not going to happen. Yes. Right. Mr. Harris, what do you want your legacy to be? Well, I, I just feel like I'm the luckiest guy walking on the street. I don't. I have enough money. Uh, there's plenty of billionaires out there, but I just, uh, health is a very important thing. I started when I was a young man. I used to play a lot of handball and racquetball, and uh, and I was always and I ran, uh, you know, for for exercise. Uh, I never would run these marathons. Just I'd go to the YMCA and run around a, a track, you know, for a couple miles. And uh, early in in my uh, career, I got this book from uh, Dr. Cooper, uh, Kenneth Cooper from uh, aerobics. For, and I followed that pattern that he'd set. Uh, I won't go into the details, but I just follow it, and I still follow it today. That, that, that He put a point system on, you have to get so many points a week. And I, I did it 50 years ago, and I'm still doing it today. So this, how old are you now? 87. 87. And you, you look good. You move around well. I don't have any pains. I have no sicknesses that I know of. I feel good. I, I can't quite do what well, I used to be able to walk a mile in 15 minutes. It might take me 17 or 18 minutes, but I still do it. And uh, I have, uh, I've had, my first wife was a wonderful lady. We were married 57 years. And I'm now with a second wife uh, for five years. And uh, she's a wonderful lady too. I have a positive mental attitude. That's a big plus. Health and my children are all healthy. I have nine grandchildren myself. Now we have 18 because my new wife had nine. Uh -huh. <laughs> so now I have 18 grandchildren and they're all healthy. Maybe I helped set an example. I think I did because all my children seem to be in an exercise mode and uh, I just feel good, and I thank God for life. That's wonderful. Mr. Harris, thank you for joining me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you.